Hey everyone, and welcome back to Skipper. On this week's episode, I'm so excited to have Brad Lindy. Brad is a professional jazz musician and teacher. Having studied jazz at both Elon University and the University of North Carolina, Brad went on to pursue a career as a musician and saxophone player. In 2010, he founded and began co-directing the Bohemian Caverns Jazz Orchestra, a 17-piece big band in residence at the historic club. He leads many other groups, such as the 10-piece chamber group called the Brad Lindy Ensemble and the five-saxophone rhythm section band Sax of a Kind, just to name a few. He also composes for his group Underwater Ghost and the Quartet Quintet Collective team players. Brad has recorded four albums, and he also co-led a New York-based group with one of the original Tristano school members, tenor saxophonist Ted Brown, since 2010. He's had the privilege of working with jazz legends, including Lee Conant, Ted Brown, Teddy Charles, Barry Harris, and legendary hard bop pianist and composer Freddie Red. Brad is also the director of jazz and creative instrumental music for a prestigious Washington, D.C. high school. Hey, Brad, how you doing? I'm so excited to have you. I'm very excited to be here, uh, Alex. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. All right, so let's, let's jump on in. So first question, Brad, when did you know that jazz would be your career? And clearly it was early on because, you know, you studied in school. And so when did you say to yourself, all right, this is what I want to do and really what I want to dedicate my life to? Well, I, I started playing saxophone when I was 10, going into the sixth grade because, you know, you had to pick a, an art or, or a performing art. And my grandfather in Louisville, where I was born, he played saxophone in dance bands, you know, as, as a career, one of his careers. He had retired from that before I was born, but he gave me an alto saxophone. And even before that, he had, I discovered his baritone saxophone in a closet under his staircase when I was like six and he put it together. And so I, I knew I wanted to play saxophone and my grandfather, you know, we lived far apart cause I was in North Carolina, but when I would see him, he would play songs on, on the horn. He could play any of the old melodies, you know, from the standard repertoire. He could do them in any key. He didn't really improvise. He, you know, varied things. But anyway, so I, I was influenced by that at an early age. And then I think in sixth grade, uh, our middle school concert band played an arrangement of Alexander's Ragtime Band. And there was something about the rhythm and uh, the harmony that uh, I was playing with the alto player next to me. Something made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I really, I really liked whatever that, that combination of the harmony and the, and the rhythm and the sound, the joyous sound of the music. And with the encouragement from my grandfather, that's, uh, I think that's what steered me. And Brad, I think you may have touched on this a little already, but what sort of qualities or characteristics about music or specifically jazz intrigued you? Well, I think, like I said, the, the rhythm and that feeling of playing harmony was kind of the first time I had experienced that. But what I liked about it was the, the, the option or the uh, emphasis on, you know, not always playing it the same way twice. So it was really exciting to me to be able to discover new ways of doing things, to be able to interpret things a little bit differently than what was on the page. You know, I didn't really get into that till high school and um, playing in jazz bands and a community band with a bunch of older musicians. I started learning that way, but never really studied it in depth or 
you know, didn't necessarily know the key players, but I, I think that was that, that creativity, that openness to be yourself appealed to me. I think I was doing it in other areas of my life and I, the music made sense to me. Right, right. So I imagine that pursuing a career in music is both, you know, of course, incredibly fulfilling and is also, I'm sure, really difficult at times. And I'm wondering what difficult phases or obstacles have you had to overcome on your musical journey? Well, I think the, the first uh, obstacle was, you know, getting out of high school and not knowing um, exactly how I wanted to make a living in music. I thought I wanted to be a high school band director. And so I, but I knew I wanted to focus on jazz. So I, I went to Elon, at that time, Elon College and, and pursued those things. And somewhere along the line, I said, well, I don't want to teach high school. That's, that's, that's silly. I want to be a jazz musician. And so I dropped my music education major. I completed all the requirements, but I didn't want to take a semester off to do um, student teaching. I didn't want to take certain courses. I didn't want to continue studying classical saxophone because I, I thought, I'm making, I'm making $20 on a Wednesday night playing four hours in a bar a classical saxophone kid, he's going to pay an accompanist $200 to do a recital every five years. It didn't make sense to me. So I kind of transitioned to being a full-time like performer uh, until I got out of college. And then I was looking for a job after graduating. And I started writing liner notes for an album for a record label. And I started teaching some clarinet lessons at a local music store. Having ever played clarinet, I thought, well, I can just do this along with the kids. And then I had to get a job because, you know, paying bills and having health insurance. But I have no marketable skills except blowing into a metal tube. So I got a job at a Borders bookstore and uh, as a music manager, music supervisor, which was really cool. I enjoyed it. But the difficulty was working 45 hours a week, evenings, and trying to find gigs and have the time to practice and the energy to focus. And that really um, became an obstacle in terms of how am I going to balance making a living with making art? Mm-hmm. And so as a follow-up to that question, have there ever been times when you second-guessed that professional path that you decided to take? Again, I think that whole idea of not having any marketable skills other than uh, playing saxophone was part of it. I remember uh, sitting with my boss at Borders about six months in, being very depressed about not making a living in music. And I said... I was talking to a friend of mine that worked there. I said, you know, I have a degree in music. I, I should be making my living as a musician. You know, I tied the college thing to the, to the living thing. And my boss came over and he goes, he goes, well, I have a degree in political science. He goes, should I be making my living uh, doing that? And I said, well, yes, you should, you know, but I realized that, you know, paths are, are different for everyone and, and, and it's only a journey, you know, it's never really a destination. So that was the first time I thought, well, what, the, what am I doing? And that's what caused me to enroll in UNC Chapel Hill as a special studies like grad student. It wasn't a degree granting program. I just wanted to be around other musicians. So that led me to pursue this more seriously and give me the skills I needed. Uh, but then there was a moment around 2015, 2014, where I, after freelancing and adjunct and things were not working financially, I thought about reconsidering my career or my location even i thought about going back to north carolina but serendipity uh 
kismet, whatever you want to call it. I got the job at Georgetown Day School and it kept me in, kept me in this area and really focused my path. Yeah. So Brad, if you had to give me the three qualities or characteristics that you have found to be the most useful in your journey through the world of music, what would they be and why? Well, I think the number one thing was passion. I had a very strong passion for what I was doing. I loved it. I wanted to know more about it. I was never satisfied with you know, the answers I got from one person or one source. So I was always you know, chasing this, taking the train up from North Carolina to New York and sleeping you know, in a club from 10 p.m. till 8 a.m. with my saxophone clutched in the corner, hoping I wasn't going to get robbed. You know, or, or I remember, you know, not having any money because I was a college student and, you know, maybe sleeping in the double-decker McDonald's upstairs over on uh, McDougal or whatever, you know, anything to, to be around the music. So I think that passion, that, that drive has sustained me. I think the other thing that's helpful in what jazz has taught me is being flexible. Life is never going to be the way you plan it and you have to be able to uh, adapt. So it's it's like imp- improvising. You just... You have to go with what you're given. And, and that's helped me in my teaching, in my personal life, in my musical career, just in everything. And I think, you know, it keeps you, you know, nimble. And then the third thing is the most important thing to me. And I think I was born with a, this disposition, but I think humor is the, is the most important thing. You have to be able to laugh at all the atrocities or the, or the strange moments or whatever befalls you as a musician or in this career because you're going to run into all kinds of situations and you have to just kind of have a, a good nature about it and not take yourself too seriously because we're all we're all trying to do this i mean we're all trying to survive and and create and 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 find happiness and gosh you know enjoy the moments you can and you know smile through the moments that are difficult mm-hmm. so when you decided that jazz would end up being your career, I'm curious to know what sort of vision did you have for yourself when you were first starting professionally? And do you think that vision has stayed the same or has it changed and adapted over time? Well, I mean, you know, originally, I think just being pragmatic or practical, I, I wanted to be a teacher. I thought I could teach during the day, play during the evenings. That was, you know, like, the model I saw growing up in the late nineties through college, I realized that um, I, I wanted to teach in higher education because I didn't want to teach marching band and I didn't want to teach concert band. And I wanted to deal with higher level concepts and, you know, that was more true to, to what I was interested in. So that was my next phase. And then at some point it was like, can I teach, play, produce concerts? You know, that, that's, Became something that I became really uh, interested in and, and, and very, you know, successful at was putting together shows and presenting them to the public. And I think that was another avenue I wasn't quite ready for. My teacher, Jan Metzger, who was a, one of my earliest mentors at Elon, he said, your income is never going to come from one source. So you have to keep all those balls in the air, you know. And, and another thing he told me that stuck with me, he said, the things that are important to you now may not be important to you later. So I... I keep copious uh, lists of things that I value at the moment or that I'm interested in. And I kind of watch that evolution, you know, keep the list of short-term intermediate and long-term goals is, is very helpful for putting that in perspective. 
And then, you know, when I got up to DC and finished my master's, I considered going into getting my doctorate terminal degree to get these great college gigs that are not very abundant. And, and now in the market these days with, well, with COVID, with the way education's going, with the way venues and, and just being a musician, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough career path. So yes, I've had to adapt. And, and while GDS, you know, I had this idea that by the time I was 35, I wanted to have a full-time job and streamline all my income sources and my schedule because I was doing too much. And so GDS actually fulfills all those things that I wanted in terms of my flexibility, in terms of my schedule, in terms of my income and benefits and retirement. The only difference is, is that it's the goal I had in 1997, but with all the bells and whistles of the things I wanted in you know, 2001. So it's, it's kind of exciting that way. Yeah. So <laughs> Brad, don't let this get to your head too much, but, uh, so as a jazz player myself, I've noticed that most professional jazz players are just really interesting and charismatic people. And along with that, many of the ones that I've had the privilege to meet are also very wise, I've found. So I know you've had the privilege of working with just some incredible jazz names, you know, Lee Conant, Teddy Charles, Freddie Red. These are some of the names I mentioned in the introduction. So what have been some of the biggest takeaways or little nuggets of wisdom you've learned from being able to work with and really just speak with a ton of incredible names in the jazz world? Well, I think what I noticed early on is that when I was studying this music, that a lot of the musicians I admired and that created the music that I loved so much were still alive and still active and still roaming the earth. And when I was at um, UNC, Jim Ketch, who was a great cheerleader for the music, very supportive of me and all of his students. And he really had this passion for the music, but he had this access to these players. So he brought in Barry Harris my first year and we got to spend a week with Barry. I remember going on a lunch break from Borders or a dinner break to go to one of Barry's workshops and it ended up going for like six hours. I just, and I, I, for me, that was the real experience. And so after that and a couple more experiences at UNC, I thought, well, I'm gonna go straight to the source. My teachers have been great. My colleagues are great. My students are great at that point. I said, but maybe I don't trust them. No, maybe I don't believe them. Maybe there's, there's, there's some other people out there that resonate with me. And so I went to as many concerts and went up to all the players afterwards to meet them, asked them if they teach lessons, things like that. So that's how I got hooked up with, with Barry Harris and Lee Konitz. And I'll, and I'll tell you the one thing that I learned from them that I feel like as a college student or as a young jazz musician that people expect you to know everything, like the whole 100 years of the history. But when I look at my heroes, they only, for the most part, cultivated their style in, in one era of jazz or whatever they were known for. Lee Konitz was a cool jazz, you know, free bopper in some way. Barry Harris was a bebop uh, keeper of the flame. And so the honesty that came across in their music was what was so attractive to me and what I wanted. So I realized after graduate school that I didn't have to be responsible for everything, that I could pick and choose what was important to me and what um, meant something to me and it felt honest and real. And so the, the nuggets or the, or the little bit of knowledge or the important thing that I took from those, those players playing with Freddie Red was that I should discover as much as I can about myself in this music and put that out there. 
Ethan Iverson calls it informed canonical choices. You know, study all the history and then find what means something to you. But more importantly is they, is their example was do as we did, not what we did. Don't copy them. Do your own thing. Take the inspiration from their originality. There's no one in the world like Lee Konitz. And he's a huge inspiration, but I can't, I can't duplicate that. No one would care if I could. <laughs> Who wants to hear me play a pale imitation of Lee Konitz? So that's, I think that's the most important thing, was that to discover the honesty and the truth in, in your own music. Mm-hmm. So I know you've had the opportunity to do a few jazz tours across the country. And for those of us who have never really experienced anything remotely close to that, just give us some highlights. Do you have a favorite venue or, I don't know, a favorite stop that you usually go to? I'm just curious to know what your favorite parts are. Well, I mean, anytime you can play in different cities and different venues, it's always a learning experience. And it's always so important to your growth as a musician. Also, let you know if you can successfully communicate your ideas to different audiences that may not know you. So these tours, are, I mean, I've, I started playing in New York when I was 29 at, at Smalls Jazz Club. I got to play at Birdland, Dizzy's. I got to play all these great clubs with, with Freddie Red and, and different players. And that was really important to feeling validated. But when I started touring with my own band in 2014 with team players, I set up the tour myself. It was a month-long tour. We did like 15 cities, 15 gigs. We were on the road the whole time. Then I drove out and played in Seattle and Portland and then drove back by myself just to do it. So when I was younger, it was fun to drive cross-country nonstop 40 hours um, by myself. Not sure I'll do that again. But the the highlights were being in in a van with with my musician friends and just living and breathing um, the music for a month. Terribly um, financially... um, um, not so great. You know, we, we lose a lot of money on these tours, but what we gain as a musician and as a, as a group and as a family, you know, I think those are the important things. Favorite venues. I love playing at Merriman's Playhouse in uh, South Bend, uh, Indiana. It's a mom and pop piano shop that have, they have a green room. They cook you dinner. They have you stay in their basement at their house and they make breakfast for you, and they, it's a jazz club, and it's a hub for all the musicians that come through the Midwest. And uh, Brothers Drake in Columbus, Ohio is a great spot. It's a honey wine spot, a meadery, but they have this beautiful stage, and they present very progressive music, and uh, Columbus scene is a family, and people come out, and then we do a couple of sets with a local band, and then we go over to another club uh, until two in the morning, and you know, check out music there. So those are, those are two of my favorites. The Hungry Brain in Chicago is a little uh, kind of do-it-yourself musician space that's uh, run by some of the greatest uh, Chicago musicians. So those are, the, those are the highlights. But just seeing the world through the lens of music. I mean, if it wasn't for music, I don't think I would have traveled as much as I have. Uh, so that's super cool. So I've noticed that many of the the most famous jazz musicians, they end up teaching in in one aspect or another at some point in their careers. So I'm interested to know, why do you think that's the case? And why do you think all these jazz greats, all these jazz musicians end up teaching later on? Well, I can tell you that 
you know, even today, if you go down to Adams Morgan and play a gig at a place like Columbia Station for three hours on a Saturday night, and I know this because I used to do it, you'll make 50 bucks a piece. Now, the reason that's uh, important is because when I used to hang out with Lee Konitz, he would say, wow, I was making $50 a night in 1949. So the gigs haven't um, caught up with the cost of living <laughs> increase uh, for the most part. It's a, it's, you know, it's a tragedy. So that's part of the thing that pushes us into teaching. There are only so many Fridays and Saturday nights in a week and in a month, you know, and in a year, so you can only make so much money. And then for me, because of the people I modeled myself after, there was an obligation to pass this music on. There's no, there's no longer these apprenticeships where you're on the road for 300 days a year with, with uh, the Buddy Rich band or the Duke Ellington band. So there's, there has to be another way to, to give that information. So I went straight to the source. So I feel obligated not to be too selfish with it. I should share what Lee Konitz taught me about jazz and his time with Lenny Tristan. I should share what Barry Harris taught me about living with Thelonious Monk or, you know, playing with Bird. Or, you know, I, I feel an obligation to pass that along. I'm part of the, of the history of it now. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. Jim Ketch said when he met the great trumpet player Clark Terry, uh, when he was in high school, he, he had this phrase. He said that Clark Terry had the ability to reach down, embrace, and lift up the musicians around him. And that's one thing I live by, is the idea that if you're in a position to do so, you should reach down to those that are less experienced or less knowledgeable, but just as passionate, and you should embrace them and bring them along with you. And that's why I teach. I think that's, I mean, besides the steady paycheck, obviously, I mean, that's whatever. But I think it's that opportunity to, to share that joy, that knowledge, that love, and that experience that is disappearing with the younger generation so that the music can continue to thrive. Mm-hmm. So in my experience, and, and I'm not sure if you've experienced this as well, but I found that many non-musicians have trouble understanding why, why some people love playing and producing music. And it's funny, you know, I feel like sometimes, even when I talk to my parents about music, who, of course, are incredibly supportive of my love and passion for music, even then, I actually feel sometimes that there's a bit of a disconnect. And... I guess I found it interesting how there's almost a misunderstanding of what musicians find so so interesting about music. So if you had to give an explanation to someone who plays no music, what would you say are the reasons that jazz is so special and worthwhile? For me, I mean, it was just a, a, a way of self-expression, you know, a way to be creative, but methodically creative, I guess. It, for me, I tapped into something bigger than myself. I tapped into this rich history of Black American music that inspired all of music. I mean, when we talk about Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington or Charlie Parker, there's not hardly a life that they didn't touch. So that, you know, something, again, you know, bigger than myself, but also that, that room for me to add my own, you know, variations on what came before me. I think that ability to reinterpret things that are monumental or exciting or attractive in some way, you know, like I... The, I get to sit down and play a Duke Ellington composition and add my own things to it. Wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a real privilege. So I think that's part of it. Jazz in particular, you know, gives you the best of both worlds. You get to play with your friends and your colleagues. You get to 
if you're lucky, play with your heroes. You get to pass it along to another generation. You get to make it up as you go along. You get to, um, you know, check out the records and the books and the, and the concerts. And it's always evolving. It's never the same way twice. It's, I don't know, it's this idea of discovery, I think, is what's so attractive uh, to me for jazz music. And it feels good. It makes you want to tap your foot. It makes you want to dance. It makes you want it, to, it, you know, the blues are a, a catharsis for uh, all the injustices uh, in the world and, and your own, you know, your own hardships. And so jazz is really anything that you want it to be. It's anything that you are. I think that's a Louis Armstrong quote. Jazz is only what you are. Or if you have to ask, you'll never know was one of his. I, that's, a little, that's a little edgy. You, you hope that uh, you can enlighten people. But Charlie Parker said, if you don't live it, it doesn't come out of your horn. So that's the other thing. It's like being able to live this lifestyle. I don't know. I improvise everything I do. I don't have a script uh, for my teaching. I don't have a script for my gigs. I don't have a script for this interview. Uh, as soon as you make a plan, something's going to go wrong. So don't plan too much. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's exciting about it. Mm-hmm. So earlier in the interview, you talked about this moment in time that happened to you in middle school when the hairs on the back of your neck you know, stood up. And that was the moment that you knew jazz was this thing that you're going to chase. And I'm curious to know if you've had any other moments like that throughout your musical career. I can't, I, I can't think of any moment, this is gonna sound weird, playing that I've had that feeling. But I, I can tell you that when I go to the Village Vanguard and sit in the front, I always sit in the front row to hear Barry Harris play. And I've heard him play probably you know, over a hundred times. I studied with him on and off for you know, a decade. He can bring tears to my eyes with one, with one chorus, one note, one touch of a chord. His spirit is so large and, and uh, it just, it, it's in every motion he makes on the piano. So that's something that happens every time and I can't explain it. And it, it's not like he, he plays the same tunes every time. And I know exactly how he's going to approach them, even though it's going to be different. But I know the approach, but it's still, there's some uh, level of connection that, that really affects me. And, uh, and the same thing can be said for, for when I would go see Lee Konitz. Maybe it's my personal connection to him, but anytime I would hear him play, even though, again, he plays the same tunes, same approach, he made everything sound so spontaneous as if he were discovering it for the first time. And I think those are those moments where, where I have that reinvestment in, in, in what I'm doing or, or that feeling of, oh, okay, I, I wasn't, this isn't a colossal waste of time, you know, something like that. So I think I look for those moments. Man, you know, one time early on in my studies with Barry Harris, I was in a class and he said, he said when he heard Charlie Parker, he heard Charlie Parker live at a roller skating rink in Detroit in the early 1950s. He said that the feeling Charlie Parker gave him when he heard him play was so overwhelming that he spent his entire life trying to re- reinvent that feeling and trying to give that feeling back to himself. So he's given himself to this music, trying to feel as inspired and as passionate and as awe that he did for Charlie Parker that one time hearing him. And I think, I think that's the same thing. I, I keep chasing. I want to feel the way that I did the first time I heard Barry or the first time I heard Lee or that first time I heard Alec or played Alexander's ragtime band. And my, you know, the hairs went off. I think I'm chasing that feeling every time. So I think that's part of it. Trying to give a feeling to myself and 
and and then by proxy, I guess, trying to give that feeling to my students. Yeah. You've probably given us a good answer to this question already, but which mentor teacher do you think had the most impact on you and why? It's, it's, it's in different stages of, of my life. You know, early on, I think, you know, like my parents aren't musicians, but my grandfather had some, you know, spell cast over me. I think this girl I was dating uh, in college, she was taking a jazz history class before I was taking jazz history. And she gave me, uh, you know, a Lester Young recording that I didn't really understand, but I go back to that recording maybe every day. Since 1997, I can put that record on and, 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 and be inspired by the way Lester Young approaches it. You know, Jim Ketch was such an important part of my life, and he still is. You know, he, he, made, he, he showed how much he loved the music and how much he loved teaching it. So that, you know, that was a big moment. And then that continued through Barry. And, and then Konitz, you know, Lee gave me permission to be myself. A lot of teachers want you to do things the way they did it. Lee wanted me to do it the way I wanted to do it. And so Lee gave me permission to improvise, gave me permission to find my own voice, and gave me permission not to be the machismo saxophone player that has to be muscular and playing all the notes fast and loud and high and aggressive. He, you know, I could be introspective. I could be um, relaxed. And so those, those, are the, I mean, those are the people that really uh, have encouraged me to continue doing this. Yeah. All right, last question here, and this is going to be a two-part question. So, Brad, as you know, this podcast is all about sharing stories that can inspire and really help to guide the younger generation to find their passion or calling and pursue and go after it. So, again, two-part question here. First part, what advice would you give to high schoolers, college students, really anyone who hasn't found that passion and are still searching for it? Well, I would say... um you know, just, oh, I don't know if this came from a Bazooka Joe rapper when I was a, a gum rapper when I was a kid. I, I love bubble gum very much. And so I, these little things always uh, <laughs> stuck out to me. But it, the, the phrase was, if you want to be interesting, be interested. So one thing I, I always took from that was, you know, I, I wanted to be interested in things. So I found things that were really important to me and I checked them out. And, you know, maybe they didn't stick and maybe they did. But I just, I just kind of followed my own compass and, and I created my own space, for, for better or worse. Someone said to me that I never, I don't, a colleague of mine in D.C. said, boy, you didn't, you didn't really go through any of the channels. You just came, came on the scene and did things the way you want to do it. I said, well, what else am I supposed to do? I created space for myself. So I think that's what you have to do. You have to find things that you enjoy, put them all in a blender and find ways to express that in your own space. You know, if, if there's not room for you, create room. If there's not what you want, make it happen. You know, make the scene. That's, that's another thing I find so important. Making the scene means not only showing up and going to people's gigs and meeting people and being on the scene, but it means literally creating the scene that you want to be a part of. And that's what I've been trying to do since I've been in DC. So I think that's, that's what I would say. Be interesting by being interested and making the scene, I think is the, the thing. Mm-hmm, for sure. And then second question, what advice do you give to the people who have found their passion and know what they want to do, but are hesitant and don't really know exactly where to start? Well, I, I would say 
you know, seek out your heroes if they're available because they're just human beings like us, like everyone, and, and they're approachable for the most part. And just ask them to spend some time with them. That's, that's something that I find helpful in solidifying or codifying your approach to things. But the number one thing I would say is don't wait. Because if I had waited until I felt ready, that was another criticism. Someone said, you're shameless, Brad. I said, no, 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 I'm fearless. Because they thought that I should wait until a certain point in my development to do the things I was doing. And the truth is, if I had waited till I felt comfortable, I would have never done anything. And Lee would have passed away. Teddy Charles would have passed away. Which one? All these opportunities would have been lost. And if I, I always thought jazz musicians had a little bit too much professionalism or seriousness about themselves where they were like, oh, I'm going to do this, 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 and that. And it has to be this way. And I thought, and it has to pay this much money and it has to do this for my career. And I looked at it more like the, the indie rock band I had when I was in high school. We played Nirvana song. I played drums in a Nirvana type cover band. We played every Sunday in my parents' basement. We were terrible. But after being together for four months, we made, uh, we made a cassette tape of original songs. I'd been playing drums for four months. I couldn't play at certain tempos. It was whatever. But we did it. And that's the same thing I carried over to my creative music was just do it. Just, just make the album. Get it out there. It'll lead to something else. It'll be an experience. You'll learn from it. Just don't uh, be shy about chasing your dreams because you know tomorrow's not guaranteed. Now, that's as morbid as I can be, but the reality is tomorrow's not guaranteed for opportunity. So I'm grateful that I went, you know, head first into uh, uncomfortable situations. I'm happy that I reached out to musicians that I respected and revered and was, I was afraid of them, um, you know, but, but I made things happen. And also realizing that no one owes me anything, obviously, and I don't necessarily owe anyone anything, but I do. I owe the universe or my community, you know, if, if I get to play with Freddie Red, then I should make a concert so everyone can come here, play, here, Freddie Red. If I can play with, if I get to study and work with Wadada, then why not share that experience with, with as many people who are interested? So I'd say, don't wait, just go out, make the scene, you know, lift, reach down, embrace and lift up. That's, that's all you need. Well, that's, that's awesome, Brad. And thank you so much. I, I can't tell you how helpful and truly inspiring it is just to have this interview and have this to listen back on later and, for everyone listening, I'm sure this is super valuable information. So thank you, Brad. Well, I mean, I mean, Alex, the, the thing about it is I'm not like these guys that I'm not like Patrick Booth or, or John Taylor or these guys that are so serious about music that they can, or, you know, Caroline is another great example. She's a, a, a beast player and she's doing it. Like she's doing it way above what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But I feel like there are people that, aren't as serious that still want to achieve and still want to have a great time. And that was me. And if people hadn't been patient with me and if people hadn't, you know, I was a big fish in a small pond my whole life. And I used that to my advantage, but I also felt the need to, to, to give back because I did feel like people were patient, supportive, gave me opportunities. And so that's all I can do is give back. And, um, and then that, then that gives you more opportunities from there. I mean, I it's just being, it's just practicing gratitude. That's what I should have said. Practicing gratitude is the thing you need to do. You know? yeah. uh, be grateful for, for what you have and, uh, and then keep having it.
<laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I hope this was helpful. Yeah. No, super helpful, Brad. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Once again, everyone, that was professional jazz saxophone player and teacher, Brad Lindy. If you want to learn more about Brad, visit his website, which is linked in the description below. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at skipper.podcast for any updates on the show and more information on the guests. Join me here next week for our next episode. Thanks so much for listening.